I'm Elizabeth Slattery, and welcome to SCOTUS 101, where we break down what's happening at the Supreme Court, what the justices are up to, and other things related to our favorite branch of government. It's a slow week at SCOTUS. The justices released orders and just one opinion on Monday of this week, and they won't meet again until later in May. So first up, the court released its decision in Thacker versus United States. Justice Kagan wrote for the unanimous court, finding that the Tennessee Valley Authority, which is a government-owned electric power corporation, might be immune from a lawsuit brought by a boater on the Tennessee River who collided with a submerged power line. But... The TVA also might not be immune. The justices sent the case back to the lower court with instructions to figure out whether the TVA's conduct giving rise to this lawsuit was governmental or commercial in nature. If it was just plain old commercial activity, then the negligence suit may go forward. From the orders list this week, there was one denial I'd like to highlight. It seems the justices are not ready to hear a post-Janus challenge to unions quite yet. The court denied review in Uradnik versus Interfaculty Organization, which asked the court to determine whether exclusive representation laws, which allow a state-sanctioned labor union to represent and speak for public sector employees, violate the First Amendment. This case was brought by friend of the podcast Robert Alt and his Buckeye Institute in Ohio. But there are plenty of other union-related cases waiting in the wings. With that, we'll turn to this week's interview with bank robber-turned-law professor, Sean Hopwood. Sean Hopwood is a professor at the Georgetown Law Center. Welcome to SCOTUS 101, Sean. Thanks for having me. So, while serving a sentence in federal prison for robbing banks, you wrote a pro se petition for a fellow inmate, John Fellers, and the Supreme Court agreed to hear the case, which is just extraordinary. Tell me, how did you get involved with writing that petition? (laughs) Well, as I like to talk about the Fellers case, um, everything in my legal career from here can be nothing but down because (laughs) the chance of getting a Supreme Court writ of certiorari granted uh, that's filed pro se by an indigent federal prisoner is probably the most, not the most, but one of the most difficult things to do on the law given Mm -hmm. that you know, the court receives seven to 8,000 petitions a year. They grant 70 to 80 of them. You have about a 1% chance. But that 1% chance is for lawyers filing briefs to the Supreme Court. Yeah. Not for pro se indigent prisoners where on the front page where the lawyer's information is, it says John Feller's pro se. Mm-hmm. The chance of having that case type of case heard is about 1% of 1%. And so it doesn't happen very often. Although there is a rather long history of Pretty big cases being decided. Uh, Gideon v. Wainwright's probably the most famous with a pro se petition. Um, But I got involved with the petition because John and I were in the same federal prison together. We were both from Nebraska. We were friends. He came to me one day and said, hey, Sean, my appeal had just been denied. He had received a 12-year sentence for his role in a conspiracy to distribute methamphetamine, had gone to trial and lost. Um, And he said, you know, I talked to my lawyer and my lawyer said, I have no chance of getting the case heard by the Supreme Court. But as lawyers like to do said, how about you send me 10 or $12,000 and we'll throw something together and file it. And John decided that, you know, giving the lawyer a bunch of money to file a brief that the lawyer said had no chance was not a good move. (laughs) Although I'm not certain that his second move was any better, which was to go to his friend who had never been to law school and who had never taken freshman English in college and graduated (laughs) with a bachelor's degree and who had been self-learning the law for 18 months and decide, oh yeah, that should be the person that does it. 
That's my guy. <laughs> yeah, that's my guy. And so when he, John came to me and said, hey, will you do the cert petition? My answer was absolutely not. I do not know anything about the Supreme Court. I had written two briefs in my life at that point, mostly had been writing memos for other people, for their lawyers to say, you know, here are potential issues you should look at in the case, but Mm -hmm. wasn't actually writing briefs myself. But John was very persuasive, and ultimately I decided to do it, and it was a really difficult legal issue, Um, one that's uh, now I teach criminal procedure. It's an area of law that's probably one of the toughest areas of law to teach. And, you know, I couldn't figure the case out. (laughs) Um, couldn't figure out what I thought the problems were, although I intuitively knew that the the Court of Appeals had done something wrong. Mm -hmm. And so one night I was reading Yale Kamazar's Modern Criminal Procedure textbook for fun uh, (laughs) in my prison cell, and there was a note in there that kind of said what what one of the issues was in the case. And I kind of had an aha moment, and I spent two months working on that brief. We filed it. John transferred to another prison, and I largely forgot about John Fellers in the case until one morning I was headed out to the recreation yard at 6.30 in the morning. A friend of mine came running and screaming out of the housing unit, Sean, Sean, Sean. And, you know, this is federal prison. So the first thing I thought was not John Fellers' case. I thought, what did I say to my buddy yesterday that he wants to come fight me at <laughs> 6.30 in the morning? Because as I remind people, if you see people running and screaming at each other in federal prison, It's not a good sign, Um, (laughs) but you don't normally go to a fight with a newspaper in your hand, and Mm -hmm. what he had was a copy of the USA Today that said that the Supreme Court of the United States had granted John Feller's petition, said how unlikely that was given he had filed pro se, and it even quoted a couple of those sentences that I had pecked out on a prison typewriter, and, you know, I, I, as I tell people, that was a life-changing moment for me that Mm -hmm. day. Did I know I would someday become a lawyer or a law professor? Certainly not. But I knew it was a big deal in in one respect. I became very popular in federal prison. (laughs) I Uh, bet. (laughs) There weren't many days when I could walk across the compound without somebody wanting to talk about their case or ask a legal question. Definitely. So then former Solicitor General Seth Waxman, who's a legendary Supreme Court advocate, he took up the case and, and represented John Fellers at the Supreme Court. And he's become somewhat of a mentor to you. Uh, So tell me about Seth and some of the things you've learned from him. Oh, I mean, it's just extraordinary what Seth did. I think most people with Seth's background, Harvard undergrad, Yale Law School, you know, clerk for a federal judge, trial lawyer, rose through the ranks of the Department of Justice, Solicitor General of the United States, I think most people, and then, you know, at that time, during the Fellers case, he was head of the Supreme Court and appellate practice at Wilmer Hale, one of the Mm -hmm. largest law firms in the country. And, you know, I think most people with that background would have said, hey, great job, Mr. Jailhouse Lawyer, uneducated jailhouse lawyer, (laughs) of getting the case granted, but we'll take it from here. And yet you would have never known that that is what the circumstances were because Seth and the team at Wilmer Hale kept me as part of the team. They would send in drafts of the merits briefs. I would mark them up. I remember putting sticky notes on them and sending them (laughs) back out. We had conversations, and, you know, I later found out that Wilmer Hale had a nickname for me. I was in-house counsel, as in the big house. Um, (laughs) That's great. (laughs) And, you know, as Seth likes to say, federal prisons are used to people calling to talk to their client. 
what federal prisons are not used to is having lawyers call the jailhouse lawyer of their client. And mm-hmm. so that's had some problems. But it was just for someone who was trying to absorb everything they could about the law but had no one to ask questions to and get answers, Seth and his team were hugely important to my advancement in prison. And then obviously, you know, we won the case unanimously. Seth and and Noah Levine, the other partner at Wilmer, could have just said, see you later, Sean, we're done. I think after John Fellers received relief and was resentenced, there wasn't a month that went by for the next four or five years while I was incarcerated where I did not talk to Noah Levine. Talked Mm -hmm. to him almost every month. I often still called Seth and had conversations with him. And then when I got out, And one of the first places I applied to get a job was Cockle Legal Briefs, a company in Omaha, Nebraska, that helps lawyers all over the country file briefs to the Supreme Court. And when I had the interview with them, they were completely shocked about my entire background (laughs) and very, you know, suspicious. Here's a former bank robber who did 11 years in prison, and he wants to come work for us. But I'll tell you, they had been trying to get through Seth's many receptionists and associates for years trying to get his business. So when they (laughs) called Wilmer Hale and said, we'd like to talk to Seth, but not about business, but about Sean Hopwood, who's applying for a job here, they were shocked when five (laughs) minutes later Seth called them back. And, And they were even more shocked when they heard from Noah Levine, who said, you know, I've never met Sean face to face, but if he comes to New York, I'd let him stay at my house with my wife and kids. That's how much I trust Sean. Mm-hmm. And and those two things made a huge difference in me getting that job. And the mentorship I've received from Seth and Noah, obviously having a letter from a former solicitor general made it easier for me to get into law school. Uh, they Definitely. both supported me when, when I was applying for clerkships. Mm-hmm. They supported me when I was going through my character and fitness issues with the Bar Association in Washington State. Mm-hmm. And they have supported me all along the way. And, you know, um, outside of my wife, uh, they're probably two of the most influential people on my success. And what I like to tell people is I am not a pick-yourself-up-by-the-bootstrap story. I could have been the smartest, hardest-working lawyer on the planet, and none of that would have mattered had people like Seth and Noah not given me a second chance. Mm -hmm. That's wonderful. So as you mentioned, the Supreme Court ruled unanimously for uh, for Fowler's in that case uh, in an opinion by Justice O'Connor. So tell me, how did you feel when you found out, when you heard about the decision? I was scared. (laughs) I was scared because you have to understand the dynamics of federal prison. Um, You can call people. But you can't receive phone calls in federal prison generally. Mm-hmm. So when a case manager or counselor comes into the unit and yells, Hopwood, you have a phone call, usually the only way you're getting that type of call is if somebody in your family is seriously ill or died. Mm-hmm. And so I was really nervous. And my counselor, who has the best poker face of all time uh, and who has now left the BOP and is like so many of the people I met in prison, my Facebook friend um, <laughs> walked me over to the phone and I pick up the phone and she didn't tell me who it was. And on the other line is Seth Waxman. And he says, Sean, the court ruled today in our favor unanimously. We won. That's and, you know, it's one of those days that I will always remember for the rest of my life. Um, 
especially considering the circumstances. There aren't many really fun days in federal prison. (laughs) Um, But winning a case unanimously in the Supreme Court was a pretty fun day, regardless of where I was at. Yeah. So you mentioned you had been studying the law for a little while before writing this petition. How did you go about training yourself to, you know, to write a petition and, and, and what sort of things were you reading and how, how did you go about studying the law? Yeah, I was just a sponge. Um, I started reading case books and then reporters for fun. Um, the Federal Reporter. We used to get softbacks, advance mm-hmm. sheets of those, and then they would be replaced by the hardbacks, and we would throw the advance sheets away. Well, instead of throwing them away, I would take them and take it back to my cell and just read a federal reporter from all of the circuits cover to cover as if this was a novel. <laughs> uh, not the most efficient way to learn the law, but I had a lot of time on my hands. So, yeah. um, you know, I just started reading everything I could, and what's strange, and I honestly don't know how this happened. Law always made sense to me in a way that if you put calculus in front of me, I would be clueless. Um, <laughs> me too. <laughs> so, you know, it was always something that, that I felt came a lot more naturally to me than other academic areas. Mm-hmm. And it was fascinating and really challenging. And I had never really tried to challenge myself academically up to that point. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, I had a little bit of success. And so that motivated me to read more. And, you know, they're, the Yale Kamazar textbook, the casebook, it's 1,600 pages called Modern Criminal Procedure. I read that three times in prison for kicks, mm-hmm. uh, which is <laughs> if, if you would ask anyone that knew me prior to going to prison, they would never in a million years have believed that I would do such a thing. So then after you completed your sentence, you went on to law school. Uh, Did you know that you ultimately wanted to end up working in the criminal justice reform space? Not immediately. Um, When I got out of prison, I was had a little bitterness towards everything, um, including the criminal justice system, including people I was in prison with. I just wanted to get away from it all. Mm -hmm. Um, But I also know the problems with the criminal justice system in a way that a lot of lawyers and especially a lot of academics do not um, because very few have my life experience. And I felt compelled to get into this line of work. Mm -hmm. And I do. I want to fix the criminal justice system. I'm not just doing it because I want all of my buddies out of prison or (laughs) that I want everyone out of prison. I'm doing it because I think there are ways to reform the criminal justice system that both makes the public safer that better respects individual liberty and that I just think can be life-changing for people that do break the law to rebound and be rehabilitated in a way that our system currently doesn't do a very good job of. So then after graduation, you landed a clerkship, a prestigious clerkship with uh, Judge Janice Rogers Brown on the D.C. Circuit here in Washington, D.C. So tell me about Judge Brown and, and that clerkship. Oh, I miss Judge Brown. Um, now that she's retired and back in California, I miss yeah. her not being here in the city. She she was one of the, you know, uh, everyone has people that, you know, you could count on as life-altering figures in your life. Mm-hmm. You know, I probably have two handfuls of people, and, and Judge Brown is definitely on the list. She's one of the most genuinely humble people I've ever met. And on a scale of 
humble people for the federal judiciary. By far the most humble federal <laughs> judge I've ever met, uh, which is always intrigues people because most people just know her by her writings. And her writings can be fiery at times. Yeah. Um, and very certain. And yet she always questioned everything that she was doing. She was always trying to look for the right answers mm-hmm. and always second guessing herself and just had a humbleness about her that I try to take on in my own career. And on top of it, you know, she was a, a, a great person to work for mm-hmm. as far as learning the law. Um, and, you know, I went into it thinking that we may have a lot of disagreement in cases, and it turned out we didn't, um, which was interesting. And, you know, I just really value getting to clerk at the D.C. Circuit and seeing how the sausage was made because I think it made me a better lawyer. Mm-hmm. But I value that Judge Brown, out of all of the people, was the one to give the former bank robber a clerkship. <laughs> and, you know, if you would have asked people, certainly people at my law school, um, who is the judge that will end up hiring Sean Hopwood for a clerkship, I do not think Janice Rogers Brown would have been at the top of anyone's <laughs> list yeah. um, considering her political beliefs. But she, you know, has always been in my corner um, and always thought that I was going to bring value to her chambers. And I just enjoyed working for her. And some of the lessons she taught me, I will take with me to the grave. So tell me about the uh, the Judge Brown clerk family. Is it a pretty active uh, group of former clerks? It is. It is. Um, you know, and it's, it's, I'm still close with a lot of the clerks that I clerked with at the mm-hmm. same time, uh, one of whom is now a federal prosecutor. So we have lots of things to talk about when we meet. <laughs> um, you know, my, a lot of my former clerks that I worked with have, have been over to our house for dinner. And yeah, the clerkship, Judge Brown's clerkship group is like a little family. And, and, I think we aren't quite as active now because Judge has retired, Um, Mm -hmm. but I run into them all over the place. And, uh, you know, we always tell Judge Brown stories back and forth when I run (laughs) into her former clerks. And it's just, you know, a lot of, I've run into groups of clerks that didn't necessarily enjoy clerking for their judge. Mm -hmm. And I definitely would say that I have yet to meet anyone that clerked for Judge Brown regardless of their political persuasion that didn't leave her chambers feeling like that was a worthwhile year spent. Mm -hmm. So now you're teaching at Georgetown and working with a broad coalition of partners uh, on criminal justice issues, including the the First Step Act, which passed at the end of last year. So first I have to ask, have you met Kim Kardashian? I have met Kim Kardashian (laughs) in October at a meeting at the White House on clemency. Um, you know, I, I was uh, intrigued that she was there just like anyone else, but I, too, found a humbleness with her. And I know that during the meeting she said, you know, I'm not an expert here. I'm mostly just here to listen and learn. Mm-hmm. And I thought that was um, interesting because, you know, I think someone who has as many Twitter followers as several countries, if not more, <laughs> would not be so humble, but she has been. And I welcome her to the criminal justice arena. I don't know if you saw the news yesterday that she is going to be studying the law and potentially taking the California bar exam in 2020. I did, yeah. And, uh, you know, we need we need more people that want to do criminal justice reform that have <laughs> celebrity status like she does because that's what convinces Americans these days. And mm-hmm. so... 
you know, I think that's a good thing. She certainly has a big a big platform to uh, to advocate for change. So speaking of change, what do you think some of the second steps are now that we've we've got the first step act? Well, I think um, a lot of that depends on what's politically possible. One of the things I'm I'm writing an article on this now that I think is politically possible is this recognition that we're not always the best at figuring out who we have to incapacitate for a long time with a long sentence. Mm -hmm. Oftentimes we give really long sentences to people who are in their teens and late 20s. And all of the social science tells us that eventually young men's brains mature and we eventually end up with the same maturity of brains that women do. It just (laughs) takes us a lot longer. Uh, And so all the data says that a lot of men age out of crime and eventually get out of this, but we still keep them in prison for a long time. And I think everyone recognizes that there are people like Alice Marie Johnson, who's the president, commuted her sentence, Mm -hmm. and people like my friend and former client Matthew Charles, who was the first person released under the First Step Act. Everyone agrees that they received a significant amount of punishment. Both of them did over 20 years in federal prison. And both of them would still be in prison, even though it's very clear to everyone who has ever met them that they're no longer a danger to the public. Mm-hmm. And so I think we can find ways to determine who is no longer a danger and who can be released, because it's really hard to do that on the front end at mm-hmm. prosecution when the prosecutor's deciding which charges to bring. And it's really hard for the judge. You know, the judge that sentenced me didn't believe me when I said, I was going to change and he was never going to see me again. Judge Cuff said in a blog post that I would have bet all the farm and all the animals (laughs) that Sean would have never made a productive citizen. And he said, what Sean showed me is that my sentencing instincts, and these are his words, not mine, that my sentencing instincts suck. Yeah. (laughs) And I do. I I I think it's just hard for judges to predict who is going to be a danger 10, 20, 30 years down the road. And Mm -hmm. at least in the federal system where so many of the long sentences are related to drug crimes, we should be trying to move the people that aren't dangerous and that can be productive members of society out of prison. Mm -hmm. Uh, Because it often is the case that the longer you keep someone in prison, the harder it is for them to get out and lead a law-abiding, successful life because the conditions in prison are so bad and because society changes. You know, when I got out in 2008, I had never been on the Internet, (laughs) never seen an iPhone, an iPad, an iPod. Um, You know, that's hard to overcome, Um, especially when you have the stigma and the thousands of collateral consequences that accompany a felony conviction. And we know that 95% of people are getting out of prison someday. It's incumbent on us to try and rehabilitate them and then make sure that when they get out, they have the support so that they don't go back to crime. Mm -hmm. It both saves us money and it makes our community safer. Definitely. All right. Well, one final question, something that I ask all guests at SCOTUS 101. If you could have a conversation with any Supreme Court justice, living or dead, who would you pick and what would you talk about? Oh, that's an easy question. Easy. I've already had it. <laughs> I've already had the conversation. Um, there is only one justice on the Supreme Court, as far as I going back in history, that I know, and that's a current justice on the court. This kind of tells you about my politics and what I value most. There's only one justice that is a diehard Nebraska Cornhusker football fan, (laughs) and that is Justice Thomas. So he, by default, is my favorite justice because (laughs) he is a Cornhusker football fan. And when I saw him at the Supreme Court once, 
he uh, showed me his watch that had a Husker decal on it and then showed me the case that holds his phone was also a Husker football <laughs> phone case. And so he automatically is my favorite justice. <laughs> That's great. Well, Sean, thank you so much for joining me. Thanks for having me, Elizabeth. Thanks for listening to SCOTUS 101. Be sure to subscribe on Spotify, iTunes, or wherever you listen to your podcasts, and please leave us a five-star rating. Please follow us on Twitter at SCOTUS 101, and you can email us at SCOTUS101 at heritage.org with questions, comments, or ideas for future episodes. You've been listening to SCOTUS 101, executive produced by Elizabeth Slattery, sound design by Michael Gooden, Lauren Evans, and Thalia Rampersad. For more information, visit heritage.org. Americans have almost entirely forgotten their history. That's right, and if we want to keep our republic, this needs to change. I'm Jarrett Stepman. And I'm Fred Lucas. We host The Right Side of History, a podcast dedicated to restoring informed patriotism and busting the negative narratives about America's past. Hollywood, the media, and academia have failed a generation. We're here to set the record straight on the ideas and people who've made this country great. Subscribe to The Right Side of History on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, and Stitcher today.